We've been working our way through um, the law, the book of Leviticus. Um, We're going to take another big bite this morning, um, working our way really all the way through chapter 22, verse 16. But instead of reading it all at once, um, we're going to read it in smaller chunks as we work through it. But I want to start, and I think this will make sense as we work through this, I want to start by reading to you 1 Timothy chapter 3. So 1 Timothy chapter 3 says this, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil." Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things so, to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Let's pray. Father, what we don't know, I pray that you would uh, teach us this morning. What we need, I pray that you would give us. I pray that we would be able this morning to set our minds on things above, the things of your word. Open our hearts, our minds, Lord, that we, might de- that we might see glorious things about our God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Charles Spurgeon famously trained pastors, many pastors, but he was opposed to ordination. He was once asked why he was so strongly opposed And he replied in a letter, just just listen to this, what he says. He says, I sit down to communicate to you my thoughts and feelings with regard to a public recognition. I am sure I need not request your notice of my sentiments, for your usual good judgment is to me a rock of reliance. I can trust any matter with you, knowing that your kindness and wisdom will decide rightly. I have a decided objection to any public ordination or recognition. I have scores of times most warmly expressed from the pulpit my abhorrence of such things. 
and have not been a little notorious as the opponent of a custom which has become a kind of iron law in the country. I'm willing to retrace my steps if in error, but if I have been right, it will be of no uh, very honorable thing to belie my former loud outcries by submitting to it myself. I object to ordinations and recognitions as such, first, because I am a minister and will never receive authority and commission from man, nor do I like that which is the shadow of such a thing about it. I detest the dogma of apostolic succession and dislike the revival of the doctrine by delegating power from minister to minister. So he's referring here to the practice of receiving holy orders or ordination in the Roman Catholic and Anglican churches. He goes on. He says, second, I believe in the glorious principle of independency. Every church has a right to choose its own minister. And if so, certainly it needs no assistance from others in appointing him to the office. You yourselves have chosen me. And what matters it if the whole world dislikes the choice? They cannot invalidate it, nor can they give it more force. It seems to me that other ministers have no more to do with me as your minister than the crown of France has with the crown of Britain. We are allies, but we have no authority in each other's territories. They are my superiors in piety and other personal matters, but ex officio, no man is my superior. We have no apostles to send Titus to ordain. Prelatic power is gone. Prelatic is like the authority of a bishop. All we are brethren, he says. Now, we could, we could argue um, with Spurgeon's point there, but the fact of the matter is ordination is a funny thing because nobody really understands it. Or maybe I should say, Every denomination or even every local church has a different understanding of ordination. And Spurgeon, ministering in Victorian England, he's specifically pushing back against the high church customs of both Rome and Canterbury, the, the Anglican church. And the simple fact of the matter is, and I, and I don't think Spurgeon would argue with this, um, both the book of Acts and 2 Timothy speak of men being set apart by God for the work of the ministry. And in the context of both of those passages, there is a, a laying on of hands, which is simply a, a symbolic gesture of ordination. In, in fact, Acts chapter 13, verses 1 to 3 says this, Now there were in the church at Antioch, prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simon, who was called Niger, Lucius and of Cyrene, Manaen, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. And thus began the evangelistic and pastoral endeavors of the Apostle Paul. He was ordained to the work of the ministry. Later, he's going to write to Timothy. He says, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer or elder, he desires a noble task. Task. Work. The tasks of ministry. God has ordained work to be done. 
kingdom work. And at different times and in different places, it looks different. So for example, the work of deacons here at RBC, it looks very different than it did in the, in the early 1940s in, in London during the Blitzkrieg when the Nazi bombs were dropping and, and the boys were all off at war. The work of deacons was very different then in caring for the physical needs of the church. The work of the ministry in the New Testament is very different from the work of the ministry in the Old Testament. And obviously the, the biggest reason for that is because the sacrificial system has been fulfilled in Christ. He said it is finished and he sat down at the Father's right hand and so there's, there's no longer any need for sacrifice, which was much of the work of the priests. And yet, and yet the message to be proclaimed for the people of God is really still the same. Be holy as I am holy. In fact, when Jesus showed up in Mark's uh, gospel, his message was very simple. In Mark chapter 1, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. And what is repentance but stop being unholy and instead be holy? Well, as, we, as we've seen in our, in our study of Leviticus, as we've walked through this book, the holiness of God's people is a central feature of their lives. Um, but holiness can have a, a couple of different meanings. Or, or maybe a better way to say it is it has a range of meaning. So, so on the one hand, it means being set apart, being separate and distinct from the world in your character and in your actions. On the other hand, it also means sinless perfection or Christ-like righteousness, which is something we are striving for and, and yet will only accomplish in, in glory. And, and, and actually, we don't accomplish it. Christ accomplishes it for us. It's called imputed righteousness. But the people of Israel, the people of Israel had covenanted with God at Mount Sinai, and they were therefore bound to keep the law themselves. And if the law set a high standard for the, for the purity and holiness among the, among the regular people of Israel, it sets an even higher standard for those who are ordained to the work of the ministry, those who, who minister in the presence of the Lord. Now, as I've been saying, both the people of Israel and Christians are called to holiness. I hope that you're seeing these connections as we've worked through this book. God said to Israel in Exodus chapter 19, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And in 1 Peter 2.9, he says to the church, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. But in both the Old Testament Israel and in the New Testament church, those chosen to be the, the spiritual leaders, they were expected to demonstrate the holiness of the Lord to the congregation. Now in the New Testament, the tabernacle, or, or later the temple, is no longer necessary. 
A physical place in Jerusalem is no longer necessary, and the sacrificial system has been fulfilled in Christ. As John the Baptist famously proclaimed, the Lamb of God, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so the the physical outward regulations, they're actually no longer in effect. Yet church leadership, both elders and deacons, are held to higher standards. That's why I read 1 Timothy chapter 3 when we started. But why is that the case? Why Why is that true? Why does God require a higher standard for the leaders of his people, both in the Old and New Testament? Well, to bring this back to the topic of ordination, Paul says to Timothy, command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, <coughs> Excuse me, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Or in summary, every every minister of God should be able to say, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Well, there's something else that's true in both the Old Testament priests and also in New Testament uh, pastors. God, God claims the totality of their lives. Ministry is not an occupation. It, it's a life. And by giving, by giving these what, what we might call holy orders here that we're going to look at in Leviticus 21... By giving these holy orders to ancient Israel, the Lord is clearly saying something about the holy nature of the ministry that warranted such high standards. And the law here specifically addresses what is, what's really, it's truly part of the normal human experience after the fall. And he begins with both addressing funerals and marriage. Funerals and marriage. Um, at any given time, Israel had many priests. And then among them, they had one high priest or chief priest. And because he was the one who would enter, really the only one who was allowed to enter the most holy place on the Day of Atonement, we talked about that in chapter 16, because of that, he was given higher standards for holiness. And that includes even during times of bereavement. So here's the application, and then we'll peel it apart, and we're going to read parts of this. We're going to read through this. Here's the application. Those who minister before the Lord must maintain the hope of the covenant in times of grief. Those who minister before the Lord must maintain the hope of the covenant in times of grief. We see this for the priests themselves in Leviticus 21, verses 1 to 6, and then for the chief priests specifically in verses 10 to 12. So let's read those verses. Leviticus 21, verses 1 to 6 says this, And the Lord said to Moses, 
Speak to the priests, the son of Aaron, and say to them, No one shall make himself unclean for the dead among his people, except for his closest relatives, his mother, his father, his son, his daughter, his brother, or his virgin sister, who is near to him because she has had no husband. For her he may make himself unclean. He shall not make himself unclean as a husband among his people, and so profane himself. They shall not make bald patches on their heads, nor shave off the edges of their beards, nor make any cuts on their body. They shall be holy to their God and not profane the name of their God. They, for they offer the Lord's food offerings, the bread of their God, before, uh, therefore they shall be holy. And then jump down to verses 10, 11, and 12. Verse 10, the priest who is chief among his brothers... Uh, on whose head the anointing oil is poured and who has been consecrated to wear the garments shall not, uh, shall not let the hair of his head hang loose nor tear his clothes. He shall not go in any, um, into any dead bodies or make himself unclean even for his father or for his mother. He shall not go out of the sanctuary lest he profane the sanctuary of his God for the consecration of the anointing oil of his God is on him I am the Lord. Now, clearly, this is about mourning the death of a loved one. So the priest was not to come into contact with, any, uh, with a dead person unless it was a very close relative. Now, for some of us, this probably sounds a little bit strange. Um, this is more than just simply touching someone who has died. Numbers chapter 19, verse 14 explains this a little bit more. And, and keep in mind, uh, they were about to enter 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, so living in tents. Numbers 19, 14 says this, This is the law when someone dies in a tent. Everyone who comes into the tent and anyone who is in the tent shall be unclean seven days. Now that's for everyone. But the priest is not to be in there at all, unless it's a close family member. This likely means that they weren't even allowed to go to funerals, except for very close relatives. He was to stay far away from death. Why? Because the curse which separates people from God culminates in death. And death is the enemy of holiness. It's the very enemy of God and his people, the enemy which will one day be destroyed. But also, don't forget, as we've said as we've walked through this, Israel is preparing to enter the land of the Canaanites with their death cults, their glorification of death. They're about to enter a land of a people who wallow in death and celebrate it. That's why verse 5 is in there, about shaving and uh, cutting themselves. It's not just a random place to tell them not to shave. The law is saying there the priests can't look like the pagan priests. Israel's priests are not to look like the pagan priests. They're to stand out and be set apart. Now with that idea in mind, let me read verse 5 again. They shall not make bald patches on their heads, nor shave off the edges of their beards, nor make any cuts on their body. This is a, a mourning of the, of the pagan priests who would, who, who would do these things. The, the Israel's priests were not to do this. And so with that in mind, listen to Job's reaction to hearing the news that he had lost his entire family, all of his children. 
Job chapter 1, verses 20 to 22 says this, Then Job arose and tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all of this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. In his grief, Job did not sin. But those without hope, specifically living in the land of Canaan, those who are outside of God's covenant people, those who are without hope and without God in the world, they went much further than Job did. Job tore his robe, they cut themselves. They permanently scarred themselves in perpetual mourning. They displayed to everyone who would ever even see them that they had no hope. But Israel's priests... Israel's priests were to be constantly pointing to the hope of the covenant, the hope that God's promises will be fulfilled, and that, that one most important promise, that the head of death would one day be crushed by the seed of the woman. They were to hold on to that hope. They were to proclaim that hope. They were to stay far away from death. And yet the chief priest, the high priest, the, the, chief, the, <clears throat> the priest who is chief among his brothers, he, he, whose job it is to remind the people of the hope specifically of God's atonement, for him, the standard is highest because he is closest to God, because he has had the anointing oil poured over his head. Not only was he prohibited, it says here, from even cutting his hair in mourning, he couldn't even let his hair hang loose, it says, which means he couldn't uncover his head at all. Today we might say something like, he couldn't ever take off his priest hat. That, that's, that's really what it means. He's always on duty, no matter what. His high priestly responsibilities were to come before anything, even, even the death of his parents. He was to have no contact whatsoever with death. God has put high standards on those who represent him to his people, who in turn need constant reminders of the holiness and the hope of his covenant promises, even in the midst of grief. After all, God, God is the God of the living. He created life. He gives life. He knits new life together in the womb. He preserves life, and he will restore life. The chief priest of all of the people of Israel, the chief priest should not weep and mourn as the world mourns. For Christians, for us. Paul will remind us in 1 Thessalonians rather, chapter 4, verse 13, he reminds us not to grieve as others do who have no hope. Because if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. And those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. 
But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And in fact, we may confidently say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Gain. And so those who minister before the Lord must maintain the hope of the covenant in times of grief. This is why, and, and Ben just did this a couple of days ago, this is why we will always preach the gospel at every funeral. Because in Christ, there's hope. There's hope. And so those who minister before the Lord must maintain the hope of God's covenant promises, even in times of grief. We've just kind of started to scratch the surface here. Because those who minister before the Lord, this is kind of application number two, those who minister before the Lord must also proclaim the purity of God's covenant in their marriages. Let's pick it up here in verse 7. So Leviticus 21, 7. I'm going to read 7 to 9, and then we'll jump down and look at the high priest in chapter thir uh, verse 13. Sorry. So Leviticus 21, 7 says, They shall not marry a prostitute or a woman who has been defiled, Neither shall they marry a woman divorced from her husband, for the priest is holy to his God. You shall sanctify him, for he offers the bread of your God. He shall be holy to you, for I, the Lord, who sanctify you, am holy. And the daughter of any priest, if she profanes herself by whoring, profanes her father, she, has, uh, she shall be burned with fire. And then jump down to verse 13. And he shall take a wife in her virginity. Again, he's talking about the chief priest right here. A widow or a divorced woman or a woman who has been defiled or a prostitute, these he shall not marry. But he shall take as his wife a virgin of his own people, that he may not profane his offspring among his people, for I am the Lord who sanctifies him. Now again, because the work of the priests was to bring the sacrificial offerings uh, to the Lord, the burnt offerings, the grain offerings, etc., because the work of the priest was to bring these offerings to the Lord, they were held to a higher standard than the normal Israelites, with the chief priests having the highest standard of all. Now, there's a couple of other quick connections that we should make here. The first is this. In the pagan idolatry of the ancient world, even right into the Greco-Roman era of the New Testament, um, prostitution was a pagan sacrament. It was a common worship practice, and God's people were to stay far away. They were, to be, they were to be pure and holy. So the idea behind this is this, and you could see this because divorce is also mentioned here. The priest and his wife were to model for the people of Israel, they were to model purity and chastity for the entire community. They were to model God's intention for marriage. Secondly, the priesthood, this is an important point on this, the priesthood was hereditary. And the chief priest had to be a descendant in the line of Aaron. And so there, had, there could be no question who, the, uh, who was eligible to be the heir to that office. And so they needed to make sure that the child was actually his son. That's the idea behind this. And then third kind of goes back to the first one. As the religious leaders, the priests exemplified for the people that marriage was intended by God to be one man, one woman producing godly offspring. 
The prophet Malachi, speaking of this, he rhetorically asks this question. He says, did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. Under the New Covenant, in the New Testament, Paul explains it this way. In Ephesians chapter 5, listen to verse 25. He says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh." This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Here's the purpose of of all of this. We believe in the sanctity of the marriage covenant because Scripture compares it to the covenant that we have with God. Paul drew in this imagery when he talks about leading them to Christ and in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, he says, I feel a divine jealousy for you, that is the Corinthian church. And then he uses this language. He says, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Do you know what that's supposed to point to? That imagery of that sentence? It's not, it's not sexual. That's, a, that's actually really creepy. <laughs> It's more like childlike. Someone who has not experienced the darker portions of this world, either in thought, word, or deed. Innocent and unstained by the death and the immorality and the, and the destruction that surrounds us. Paul, in that analogy, Paul is like the, like the big brother of the bride, presenting her to her promised Redeemer. But but you know what's beautiful about this picture? In the gospel, and this is where the priests will always fall short. In the gospel, the bride is never unstained by the world. Never unstained by the world. Think Think of Ruth and Boaz. Ruth was foreign to the covenant. She was not a part of God's people. She had no rights and privileges of being blessed by God. She was an outsider. She was a widow. That means that not only had she been married before, but she had also tasted death. Her husband had died, and he had died leaving her childless. Because she was a widow... That meant she, and childless, she had no heir. And in the ancient world, that meant that she was destitute. But God, but God in his kindness and according to his eternal plan, listen to the end of the book of Ruth. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her. And the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. And then the woman said to Naomi, her mother-in-law, 
Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. King David's grandfather. But even more than that, in the line of Christ, Ruth, who was a nobody, in ancient world, who would have been destitute, not even, not even a part of God's people. She should have gone back, and Naomi tried to send her back to her pagan ancestors, her pagan family. Go back and live among your people. Let them take care of you. But God, but God in his kindness, according to the love with which he loved Ruth, gave her a husband and a son. See, this is how the gospel works. Here's the law. Here's the standard. Be holy. And none of us will reach that standard. Jesus points this out. We, 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 we break the law in our minds even. None of us will reach this standard. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still lawbreakers... While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We could say a low and casual view of marriage reflects a low and casual view of God and his promises. I want to make one other connection. And this is why, we're, this is why as a church and as the elders of the church, we're working to be sure that we have a high view of church membership because we believe that it is about a covenant commitment. It's not just simply like cohabitation. And so we must also say that those who minister before the Lord must proclaim the, the purity of their covenant in marriages, the purity of God's covenant in their marriages. That's why the elders are required to, to, to be simply the, the husband of one wife, a one-woman man, because God is faithful to us. But the law continues to speak, and it speaks in kind of awkward physical requirements for the priests. But we're going to read it. Leviticus chapter 21, beginning in verse 16. I'm going to read 16 through the end of the chapter. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron, saying, None of your offspring throughout their generations who has a blemish may approach to offer the bread of his God. For no one who has a blemish shall draw near, a man blind or lame, or one who has a mutilated face or a limb too long, or a man who has an injured foot or an injured hand, or a hunchback, or a dwarf, or a man with a defect in his sight, or an itching disease, or scabs, or crushed testicles. No man of the offspring of Aaron, the priest who has a blemish, shall come near to offer the Lord's food offerings, since he has a blemish. He shall not come near to offer the bread of his God. He may eat the bread of his God, both of the most holy and of the holy things, but he shall not go through the veil to approach the altar because he has a blemish, that he may not profane my sanctuaries, for I am the Lord who sanctifies them. So Moses spoke to Aaron and to his sons and to all the people of Israel. Now, the work of the priests in the Old Testament um, 
was incredibly uh, taxing physically. It was constant butchering of animals, building fires, gathering wood. In fact, Numbers chapter 8, verses 24 and 25 actually says that they have a mandatory retirement age. Numbers 8, 24 and 25 says this applies to the Levites. From 25 years old and upward, they shall come to do duty in the service of the tent of meeting. And from the age of 50 years, they shall withdraw from the duty of service and serve no more. I'm going to be 50 in December. Just saying that. Just letting you know that. But let's summarize this section like this. Those who minister before the Lord must be approved to perform their duties. They must be physically able to handle it. That's what this is about. But not only that, they must also be, they must be healthy and whole, meaning without defect or blemish, because they were to be reflections of the holy God. They were to reflect man as God created him, which was very good, Genesis 1.31. This is the same reason that the sacrifices were to be without blemish. Because under the law, bodily perfection was an extension of holiness. Yet even in this passage, even in this passage, God in His grace still allowed imperfect people to eat of the offerings. They were simply prohibited from actually bringing the sacrifices to the altar. Because in, in his disability or, or otherwise imperfection, he bore the stain of sin in his body. Now hear me here, not necessarily his own sin, but still the effects of sin in the world. The reason for all of this is that only the whole and uncorrupted may approach God. That leaves every one of us out in some way or another. Only the whole and uncorrupted may approach God. So for us, we have been clothed with Christ's righteousness. Do you know what that means? That means that God still looks at the heart, not the outward appearance, and the heart that he sees is Christ's. We've been clothed with Christ's righteousness, and so we may boldly approach the throne of grace. We don't have to be perfect physically. If you wake up with a bad sore back or one of those things, one arm longer than the other or something like that, you can still boldly approach the throne of grace. There is much more that we could actually say about this, but I want to, I want to briefly get to this last section um, here today. And the, the application on this last part is this. Those who minister before the Lord must remain pure if they are to lead corporate worship. Those who minister before the Lord must remain pure if they are to lead corporate worship. Let's read, so chapter 22, verses 1 to 16. <coughs> And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, so that they abstain from the holy things of the people of Israel, which they dedicate to me, so that they do not profane my holy name. I am the Lord. Say to them, 
If any one of all your offspring throughout your generations approaches the holy things that the people of Israel dedicate to the Lord while he has an uncleanness, that person shall be cut off from my presence. I am the Lord. None of the offspring of Aaron who has a leprous disease or a discharge may eat of the holy things until he is clean. Whoever touches anything that is unclean through contact with the dead or a man who has had an emission of semen or whoever touches a swarming thing by which he may be made unclean or a person from whom uh, he may take uncleanness, whatever his uncleanness may be, the person who touches such a thing shall be unclean until the evening and shall not eat of the holy things unless he has bathed his body in water. When the sun goes down, he shall be clean, and afterward he may eat of the holy things, because they are his food. He shall not eat what dies of itself or is torn by beasts, and so make himself unclean by it. I am the Lord. They shall therefore keep my charge, lest they bear sin for it and die thereby when they profane it. I am the Lord who sanctifies them. A lay person shall not eat of the holy thing. No foreign guests of the priests or hired workers shall eat of a holy thing. But if a priest buys a slave as his property for money, the slave may eat of it, and anyone born in his house may eat of his food. If a priest's daughter marries a layman, she shall not eat of the contribution of the holy things. But if a priest's daughter is widowed or divorced and has no child and returns to her father's house as in her youth, she may eat of her father's food, yet no layperson shall eat of it. And if anyone eats of a holy thing unintentionally, he shall add the fifth of its value to it and give the holy thing to the priest. They shall not profane the holy things of the people of Israel, which they contribute to the Lord, and so cause them to bear iniquity and guilt by eating their holy things. For I am the Lord who sanctifies him. So this last section here, um, it warns the priests against against eating the, the, the sacrificial bread or the sacrificial meat of the offerings while they are ceremonially unclean. Now, the, the causes of their uncleanness or defilement that we read through there, we've already addressed that, and so I'm not going to take the time here to go over that again. But we should see here that, that no person is exempt from life in a fallen world. None of us are exempt for these things. However, these uncleannesses, if they, if they barred normal Israelites from the sanctuary of the holy God, then they certainly barred the priests as well. And so violation of God's commands carries the penalty of being cut off from God's presence. That, that means that they were, they were disqualified from the ministry. They were removed from the sanctuary. And verse 9 even says, They shall therefore keep my charge, lest they bear their sin for it and die, thereby when they profane it, I am the Lord who sanctifies them. Now the last couple of verses of this section, 15 and 16 or so, they make it clear that disobedience to the Lord's commands brings guilt, and guilt brings death. But for us, for us, what does the gospel provide for? What does the gospel provide for? Repentance. Stop being unholy, and instead turn to Christ. Turn from your sin and turn to Christ for salvation. Now, as we consider these things and come to the Lord's Supper, 
each and every week when we gather together, proclaiming his death, coming to the table to rejoice in Christ. As we come to the Lord's Supper, Paul will say in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, consider a part that I don't often read when we work through this, when we come to the table, but the very next section, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven, says this, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Can you hear the connection? Can you hear the connection there between the, uh, the priests eating the, the, the sacrificial offerings, the bread of the grain offerings, and when we come to the table? Listen again to verse 28. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Examine himself. Are you unholy? I don't, I don't mean, uh, are, you, are you sinless, right? Are you holy and sinless? None of us are sinless. But if we confess earlier in the service, and I try to do this every week, we, we confess our sins as a church. I may be the one talking, but we're praying together. And we're confessing that we have not kept his law. We have not loved the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. We've confessed those things, but he is faithful and just to forgive us our law-breaking, our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so as we examine ourselves, the, the question there, the question really is, are you among the holy or among the unholy? Are you still living as though you're among the world? If you are, then don't eat and drink. He says, you're eating and drinking judgment on yourself. Instead, come to Jesus. Trust in Jesus. Repent and believe in the gospel. Turn around and turn to Christ. Because if you eat and drink in an unworthy manner, Paul says, meaning that you are not a part of God's covenant people, then the Bible says you are eating and drinking judgment on yourself. You are profaning the name of the Lord. That's what Leviticus says. This is serious. This is serious stuff. We believe these things. But the Bible also says in verse 28 again, let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's what we're doing. We are proclaiming that Christ died for sinners, among whom I'm the chief, the foremost. Christ died for sinners. Pray with me. Father, on our own, we can never be holy. 
The people of Israel proved that time and time again. We can see it in your word. By the time we come to the New Testament, they just simply had a whole list of rules to follow and, and would enforce for everybody else not to break the Sabbath, not to work, um, even in the slightest way, even in a way to heal someone. Tithing from their spice rack. Purely external. But Lord, because of Jesus Christ, we have been made holy that all who have believed and confessed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, have repented and believed that Jesus has risen from the dead. Lord, we know that you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so we come to the table this morning with thankful hearts, knowing that while we have sinned, we have been forgiven even before we came in here. We have been forgiven because of who you are, gracious and merciful and abounding in steadfast love. And so we can eat and drink and proclaim the Lord's death until he returns with joy, with thankfulness. Father, I pray that we would be a people who abound in the hope of the resurrection, the hope of seeing our Savior face to face soon. The hope of forgiveness and restoration. Father, we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.